morning, Chris. How are you today? Good morning. Uh, I am uh, doing great this morning. Um, just getting ready to uh, head off to a uh, big bridge tournament in Tennessee. So that's mm -hmm. exciting. Which one it's is exciting? It? Uh, it, it, it's fairly exciting, this one. Um, it's a local tournament, uh, which by rights shouldn't have a particularly competitive field, but just for some historically accidental reason, um, everybody goes to this tournament. And so it's going to have a field that's equivalent to many national championships. Wow. Wow. That means that there's good challenge here. Good practice for the world championship for you. Good challenge. Good practice. Um, yeah, it's just it's just fun to play. Um, I won't see a vegetable for uh, six days, I think. Because we... <laughs> It'll be deep fried if you do. Yeah, that, that's true. There might be a little deep fried okra uh, sprinkled throughout. <laughs> Oh, great. Chris, where did you I thought grow you were referring up? to the players, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in, in New York City, actually, um, I, on Roosevelt Island, uh, mm -hmm. being specific, um, which is, uh, for those who don't know, it's a small island located between Manhattan and Queens um, mm -hmm. that uh, is accessible by subway and by a tramway. Um, and so, um, it, it had at that time a little bit of, uh, I won't really say a suburban feel because when you grow up in a 30 story building, it's, it's really hard to say that that's like the suburbs, but there were parks and green things, um, and you could walk places. Um, so it was kind of a good mix of, of two worlds, I would say. Mm -hmm. How did you fall in love with bridge? Yeah. That was garbled so, in case the podcasters missed that. Chris Heidel yeah. asked, how did you fall in love with Bridge? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, it was uh, pretty much entirely by accident. Um, so what happened is um, we were on a family vacation, and I was uh, quite bored. I was probably 15 at the time. And uh, my mom said – Oh, you know, Chris, you like games. So to alleviate your boredom, uh, I played this great game in college called Bridge. And perhaps you'd like to take a book out of the library and, and read about it. And I took a book out of the library. And this, so this is around 1990. Um, and the book was written in, in 1953. So it was turned out <laughs> later, quite behind the times. But I didn't know that. And I was just hooked um, by this this instructional book, and I sort of memorized the whole thing. I read it from cover to cover a few times. Um, and then uh, one day I went to a, a place in New York City where they play bridge, and I said, well, I, I know everything. I read this book. I'm ready to play. Um, so, <laughs> of course, that it turned out that that was not quite right. Uh, but... Uh, I was very lucky that uh, the place that I showed up had a pretty robust community of young people, uh, players in their 20s, so just a little bit older than I was. And that's actually somewhat unusual. Um, Bridge uh, 
one of our challenges as the as a community as bridge players is trying to kind of appeal to young people um, who have the sort of easy uh, entertainment fix of video games and um, other right. kind of uh, fast options. Um, so we try to appeal to them to play bridge instead because it really is the world's greatest game. Uh, but it does take a little bit of time investment. Uh, but anyhow, so these folks had already um, been bitten by the bug. And so I had this community to kind of learn the game with and socialize with. And I think it really, if um, things hadn't timed out in just that way, if I hadn't happened to read that book at that particular moment and hadn't happened upon um, this little enclave of 20-somethings who... Uh, thought only of the game despite um none of them working at it professionally but basically spent day and night thinking about bridge um uh, my life would look very different today wow yeah it reminds me of uh josh waitskin talking about his time in in the city um learning chess yeah the funny thing is i'd be like so you'd be playing chess in washington park instead Right. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's possible something like that would have worked out. But yeah, it's true. Josh Waitskin went to uh, school with a really robust uh, chess program. And so uh, when you have that early exposure to whatever it is you end up doing, um, it turns out, I guess, that that's pretty, uh, pretty important for determining your destiny, which is kind of scary. Uh, <laughs> we like to think we're making decisions, but the fact is that uh, chance and location are making a lot of those decisions for us. Well, I'd agree with that partially. You know, I think when you, for example, choose a necktie, the necktie chooses you. You look at hundreds or thousands sometimes of these things, and the one that strikes you uh, has, you know, comports with your sense of aesthetics and things you've developed. Chris Wilkin, Chris Heidel is way more stylish than either of us ever hoped to be. Yeah, no, I, just... I, I was going to say that I demur from this one because my, my, wife, my, wife, my wife picks the ties. <laughs> Which you picked your wife, so. That, that's true. We picked each other, yeah. That's true. I get transitive credit. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things you talk about, Chris, in some of your instruction is about visualization. And I don't know, you know, there was a famous, I, I don't want to keep going back to chess, but a chess champion named Paul Morphy from my hometown, New Orleans, and he was one of the first American grandmasters. But um, before there was photography, he could remember things. So I don't know if they called it a photographic memory. <laughs> and they said, he can just remember stuff. <laughs> There's no photograph to compare it to. But in your sense, did you always have this ability to really visualize? You absorb that book very uh, it seems readily. Uh, I, I don't know that my inherent visualization skills are so enormous. Uh, I think <laughs> I think that w w what I do have is the ability, for better or for worse, um, and often for worse, to focus on one thing and really kind of hone in to the exclusion of all else. Um, and mm. so I, th I think. Um, I've noticed, by the way. Yeah. So I think I think that's what uh, what happened to me here is the world just got very small um, and it was it was only this game. Uh, and so if one can really focus an entire human mind on one project or task, it's actually 
surprising uh, what can be accomplished, I think. Wait, so what happened when you ran into parliamentary debate, right? It wasn't the, your, your second, like, love? Yeah, so, um, so I, I did uh, choose my uh, college um, based on the lack of uh, any bridge uh, community on the campus because I had this idea that um, I didn't want to get too, too sidetracked from my studies. Uh, mm-hmm. So as a result, uh, when I was at school, um, I won't say I took a hiatus from bridge. I was definitely reading a lot about the game and, and studying it. But uh, for the most part, during the school year, I wasn't playing it too much. And so, yeah, I needed uh, another fix uh for my uh you know competitive side and so um i was drawn to uh parliamentary debate which is an interesting format in that um there's no um specific knowledge or preparation on topics um so the topic will be proposed uh right at the uh the time of the debate and uh, all of the issues are supposed to be um, discussable using only general knowledge. So someone who is kind of an informed reader of the New York Times should be able to handle uh, everything that's thrown at them. And so it's it was kind of a, 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 a partially logic and partially uh, tactics of figuring out exactly how um, – certain arguments rated to go and where you wanted to be positioned. And so um, both of those areas were interested to me. So uh, instead of spending my weekend studying, I spent them uh, traveling to debate tournaments around the Northeast. Wow. So, <laughs> and so you developed this extemporaneous style. Uh, well, so the, 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 the mode of debate was extemporaneous uh, mm-hmm. and uh, happened that that suited my strengths pretty well. Um, I was pretty good at um, hearing an argument for the first time and having a pretty well-crafted rebuttal ready to go by the time that uh, my opponent had kind of finished speaking. Um, so they'd speak. So Chris, I was asking um, uh, what, what uh, relationship if that had to your bridge playing how, and how did they support each other if at all yeah it's a good question i think that um anything one can do to uh practice and develop uh linearity of thinking uh mm-hmm. is, is actually helpful in most um intellectual endeavors so probably uh, debate and bridge reinforced each other. And uh, I think they also reinforced um, other, uh, my other skills that have helped me in, in uh, jobs that I have had. Uh, I think if, you, um, if you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what certain facts imply, uh, that's just kind of a good way to think about many uh, problems in the world. Mm-hmm. Wait, so you became, so were, were you world famous at Bridge yet at this point when you joined oh, no. college? Um, been... No, I didn't become, <laughs> I, 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 I had had, uh, well, I guess it sort of, I suppose it depends how you def, uh, define world famous. In my 
um, <laughs> senior year, in your, <laughs> my senior year of college, I won a silver medal in the world under 26 championships. So I guess I would have been viewed as a promising young player. Uh, but my real breakthroughs in bridge didn't really come until 2007 was probably the big moment when um, I was added to the first uh, really strong world-class professional team that uh, I've played on. Mm -hmm. Got it. So wait, take me through the, a little bit of the rise of becoming one of the best parliamentary debaters. You never actually said that, but I imagine you became very good at it. Just, you said you became good at it, or you, you enjoyed yes, it a lot. Yes, my, my partner and I, um, in our senior year, were the most successful uh, parliamentary debate team um, in, the, in the country. Um, so we, we definitely um, became pretty good at it. Um, and my partner, who's no, you know, no, no slouch herself, uh, her name is Amanda Amert, and she's now a, to, to, to nobody's surprise, um, the head of a department at Jenner and Block. Um, so a very fancy attorney, um, which is, I, I would say, a typical route for debaters, um, even though not, not the one I chose. And really, we would just um, watch what the, uh, the best people were doing and try to take from that um, what we thought was good and uh, drop things that we thought um, weren't helping them. And so we would just we thought about it carefully as we went to kind of have our own style. And I do think that uh, to have real success, prob probably in almost any area, uh, requires kind of um, – requires developing one's own style, right? Adding some some pieces that nobody's ever seen before, right? You look at the great basketball players, um, for instance, right? Each one of them typically does something that you really don't see um, from anybody else, right? You watch James Harden, um, you know, do his little Euro step and you say, wow, this guy just kind of uh, – I did not know you were in the basketball. You know, that, that, that's a major innovation, um, right. and so uh, we we tried we tried to be innovators, and in Bridge, I, I've tried to be an innovator as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wait, so okay, so you're, you're nationally ranked. Then you go on, um, you graduate, they kick you out. Um, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> and then at some point you're actually playing on this national bridge team. You know, where, where was your career? At the, at the yeah, time? I know you were a high frequency trader as well. Where does all of yeah. this start? And yeah, so so uh, all, all of my career is also complete historical accident. Um, so um, my first job out of college was as a market maker in stock options on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. And I was a prop trader. So I had my own little corporation that was just me um, and um, my backers funded it and I just kind of traded for my account. And the reason that I got set up in that way is because I happened to know some bridge players who were kind of in the business of setting up other people who were also largely bridge players um, in this way. So mm -hmm. I did interview for kind of all of the um, sort of traditional um, 
you know, investment banking, consulting jobs and all of that stuff uh, coming out of school. But uh, I don't know, the, the allure of sort of being in the pits um, was a little too much for me to pass up. And I liked the idea of working for myself. Um, although, of course, it was um, definitely an on-the-job learning experience. It took me about um, a year of doing that before I really had a, a good idea of what was going on. Um, but it, it was a fun game, um, options trading. Because uh, mm-hmm. there were mathematical components and also psychological components, uh, so um, I was doing that. I was playing bridge as an amateur, kind of running to all the big tournaments, um, and then uh, around uh, in the year two thousand, um, the stock options business was really kind of drying up. Um, there were a bunch of changes, which were. Uh, I would say very good for customers and so should have been made, but were uh, extremely bad for sole proprietor market makers. Uh, (laughs) And so I had no idea what I was going to do next, but right around that time, uh, a friend of mine called and asked if I wanted to start partnering with him in a professional bridge. Um, So he he was going to hire me to play with him in some local tournaments. And um, we ended up, um, doing pretty well in actually a bunch of national tournaments as well. So that was kind of the beginning of my uh, professional career. Uh, and so that was interesting. I hadn't really considered uh, the idea of making a career out of the game. And at this point, um, it definitely wasn't uh, uh, the kind of career that I would have wanted. So um, shortly after that, uh, I transitioned back into uh into the trading world um where i was a um a high frequency trader on the desk of uh pretty well known um quantitative trading firm uh we are allowed to say uh, what the name uh, of the firm is well i i'm not going to say just in case we kind of talk about <laughs> you know more okay. specifics or anything right. like that right. um i mean it's, it was let's put it this way it was a place that at that time valued secrecy so there was no uh, list of employees anywhere for instance even within the company um just uh, on the fear well, that's that, always a sign of nobility on the fear that it would be circulated uh the place actually right. the place actually was um shockingly a, a hyper ethical place um in contrast oh. to um sort of the stereotypical um high frequency trading shop um so. and in what uh in what way do you do you mean that chris what were what's an example or um a marker of that so ethical. I th- yeah so i think in in the world of finance generally um there are a bunch of rules that say what you can and can't do um but uh there are also those same rules in the real world, right? And people don't go out in, in normal life. They don't meet each other and say, well, look, I can basically, whatever's within the laws, you know, if I don't like just chop your arm off or something like that, I can do, I can do whatever I want to, and it's totally fine. If it's within the rules, I feel good about this. But somehow in the markets, uh, there can often be that type of sense uh, that that uh, activity which isn't illegal or against some specific SEC or fin, FINRA regulation um, 
if, if that's profitable, that it, it, it should be engaged in. And, um, you know, these folks um, had what I'd call, you know, the ethics of the outside world. They wanted to um, deal with their counterparties and with the market general um, fairly. So um, they definitely were trying to make money off other people by being smarter than them. Um, but uh, they weren't um, taking shortcuts that would be perceived in in the ordinary world um, to be kind of taking advantage, right? Where you, you might well um, see that in business um, sometimes and in the markets, you see it all too frequently, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, did just changing from... Uh, options trading to a professional bridge player was it one of those uh things that are symptomatic of taking a passion and turning it into a business that wait wait chris i, I the way i hear the story at least from uh lauren one of the guys who works with us um uh, high frequency trading was getting in the way of yeah that. so that's so so i i did options then i did you know, bridge, but not at the highest levels. Then I did the high frequency trading uh, work. And then, yeah, I was at a point where um, I was really, so two things happened. Uh, first of all, I was getting run down because uh, I was using all of my vacation to uh, travel to the major bridge tournaments. Uh, and I negotiated, I had an extra week of vacation beyond what anybody else at this firm had. You know, they really were supportive. They went out of their way to kind of make sure that I could play in these uh, big events. But um, sort of I'd end up, even with the extra week, I would end each year with negative two trading days or something like that. So a negative two, uh, negative two, uh, 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 vacation days rather. So um, that was, it was definitely wearing me down. Um, and at the same time um, in 2010, um, the end of 2009 actually was when the deal was inked. I got this great offer to play on um, a pretty fancy team with a multiple time world champion. And so it just kind of seemed like a, a, a natural time to uh move on because the bridge prospects were really excellent and the, the trading was grinding me down. And I just didn't feel like um, if I was tired all the time, um, I'd be able to kind of do really well at, at either one of these uh, mm -hmm. uh, options. I'd have to sort of choose uh, one. And so uh, I chose bridge. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, that. I'm sure that's what your parents were thinking when they sent you to college. Let's, let's hope he becomes a bridge Yeah, player. you know, my mom was a little concerned about all this, but my dad was very laissez-faire. He just kind of rolled with it and said, okay, like if you think you know, if that's what you think is best, then 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 go for it. And I was, uh, um, you know, quite a few years out of college at this point, right? I'm 12 years out of college. So um, at that point, I think you actually really are an adult and uh, there's just a limit to how much input your parents get to have on these things. And But uh, it, it definitely ended up being um, the right uh, place for me. Bridge was the right place for me. What, and so what's the highest you've uh, ranked in a tournament in like the world championship? Yeah, tournament? so um, I want to... Um, a silver medal um, in the 
2018 World Championships, and I've had a bunch of kind of silvery, bronzy types of things, but no gold yet, unfortunately. Um, so uh, that's kind of the the next career goal is to win that first World Championship. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, wait, when you got the silver, was your mom happy, or would she be like, "Why was she saying?" Why are you still a bridge player, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, I think it is nice to some extent to have these podium pictures um, to show her friends, so they don't assume that the fact that she's telling them I'm a bridge player means that I'm actually homeless, you know, living in a ditch somewhere. Uh, so some concrete proof. Uh, Interesting. Um, you know, one of the things I was curious about on this podcast was to dive in a little bit uh, of the differences between a high frequency trader and the value investor, um, Chris, well, Chris Heidel and uh, Chris Willinken being the, the arbitrage trader at one point. And then um, also to learn a little bit more about um, where your ability to look at strategy really developed from, uh, because, you know, I found our conversations, um, enlightening at moments and, um, you know, taking things that I thought I was seeing very clearly a couple of steps forward beyond that or thinking through with even more clarity. Um, and so those were kind of some exciting topics I thought we might discuss. Well, <laughs> so like, how, how do we start the debate for you about which methodology is better as an investor? Like, how do I see the argument unfold? I just want to be entertained. Well, I don't know that there's a, a disagreement. There are, <laughs> there are different ways to make money in the markets. There, um, For me, back to what Chris said earlier, um, one of the things I try to guard against is making too many decisions and increasing the probability I could be wrong. So I'm a very low-frequency <laughs> trader. Um, and that's really, I think, the distinction. But again... Chris, I don't know exactly what um, the strategies you employed or your firm were employing are. Yeah, but for me. Yeah, yeah I, I would think I agree. I agree that we're we're probably um, not actually uh, far apart in our thinking, if at all, because uh, <laughs> when I invest uh, on my own behalf, uh, I definitely have a. Um, value-oriented focus, um, extremely value-oriented focus. Uh, but uh, there are um, opportunities sometimes to be uh, quicker than others or to see patterns where others uh, do not see them um, in relationships yes. between um, different but related um, financial instruments. Uh, uh -huh. And so... Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that um, the the you know the, the business the business of high frequency trading um, is a legitimate business. Um, it can be conducted mm -hmm. in illegitimate ways, but uh, there mm -hmm. are ways to do it where um, uh, it's just a different way of outthinking people than a value investor. Mm -hmm. um, value investors trying to kind of make. Um, long-term predictions better than everybody else um, mm -hmm. and the high frequency trader is trying to make predictions about um, what's happening tomorrow and so uh, and and uh, m most relevantly the value investor is seeking uh, substantial returns on the investment 
whereas the high frequency trader is seeking incredibly small returns, um, but over a short period, um, giving an excellent um, annual rate of return. So um, mm -hmm. I might have been trying to uh, do a big trade to, to net 0.3% uh, um, mm -hmm. or something like that, um, mm -hmm. but uh, over, well, over 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, something like that would be very exciting. Um, so right. it really is, they, are, they really are just kind of two, two, two ends of um, a spectrum and not really two different um, ways of thinking about things, I don't think. You kind of said that on the phone. I, I'm a little disappointed. I, you know, I kind of halfway expected or hoped you guys would start throwing pie at each other or something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I was surprised to say that they to, to learn that they were really. Yeah, so I think one thing I, I'm guessing um, that Chris will agree with me. Uh, one thing that what one idea that um, kind of applies to all of my own investing and also applied to the high frequency trading is I didn't want to ever um, invest in anything where I didn't understand um, the product or how we were going to make money. Um, and mm -hmm. so um, I would never um, buy something because I thought I could sell it to somebody else um, for a, a, a greater price. Um, I'd buy something because I thought, the actual value would increase. Um, and so I, I, ca I call the first kind of strategy um, the, the greater fool theory, right? Where mm -hmm. you know, if we buy something and it's, uh, it's too expensive, um, maybe somebody will be stupider than we were and buy it uh, from us for an even greater price. And I just think that that game of musical chairs is okay in, in, unless you're the, the, the person left standing when the music stops. And, and uh, as people found out in 2007, 2008, 2009, it could be um, extremely painful and kind of undo um, many years of hard work. So and swift and very swift, very yeah. swift, very swift. You know, it's very interesting. I, I used to like to say that trouble followed me to my trading jobs because I traded uh, stock options through the. Asian financial crisis of 1997, long-term mm -hmm. capital blow up in 98, the internet boom and bust of 99 and 2000. Uh, so then I, uh, <laughs> I left the floor and actually the markets got pretty quiet. Um, and then I, re I returned to work in 2006 and that was pretty much just in time for um, the Bear Stearns hedge funds to start unraveling in 2007, <laughs> the subprime crisis to be full blown, you know, in 08 and 09. Um, and then, uh, you know, things have been reasonably quiet um, since I left. So um, basically, if, any, if anybody, uh, any sh big short sellers are listening to this, you, I, you should yeah. hire me in um, on a part-time <laughs> basis uh, because there will probably be a market calamity if I return to a trading floor. I was going to say, please alert us, uh, Chris, when you return to the markets. <laughs> so, um but yeah, I, I um, don't disagree with you at all. I think, um, you know, there's that old joke in investing. You want the markets to agree with you eventually. <laughs> I think for high frequency traders, it's just sooner. And um, what, what high frequency has done for arbitrage is really remarkable in terms of how quickly prices um, can adjust. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, 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 a, 
it's an interesting question whether um, that's desirable for markets because uh, on the one hand, uh, we always like for things to be fairly priced. So um, investors, who, which is who we should really be caring about, can kind of have access to things um, at, at the right price with a very little um, implied commission from the spread um, the market spread between the uh, bid and the offer. Um, so arbitrators have done a really great job of giving us kind of penny-wide markets in a bunch of financial instruments. But on the other hand, uh, those markets do not have a ton of depth and stability. And um, I remember, uh, you know, back in the old days where the – uh, specialist in either um, in equities on the New York Stock Exchange or stock options on the Amex had responsibilities. Uh, the specialist had a responsibility to provide liquidity and depth to the market. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you would see um, if um, Fidelity had to sell uh, 10 million shares of something in a day. Um, they didn't just have to start hitting um, 300 shares of arbitrageurs bids one at a time and you know run the right. stock down five or six percent. The specialist would um, try to you know go out and try to gather bids and try to find um, a good price where the whole thing could be traded at. So um, they were in some senses, I won't say a fiduciary of the customer, because of course um, they were trying to make their own profit, but um, it had a little bit of that um, sort of aspect where uh, they had obligations beyond just making money. And now uh, there's nobody making markets has that obligation because, of course, um, if you're a specialist um, and the high-frequency trader is kind of besting you by a penny when things are good and taking all your trades but leaving you holding the bag when uh, when the market's crashing – um, you know, you're not you're not going to want to maintain that same set of professional obligations. And so, in fact, um, there no longer is um, an obligation on the part of the specialist to provide that liquidity and depth. And so, uh, on, on a on a bad day, um, things can be much worse now right. than uh, would have been able to happen 20 years ago, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we really do see that, Chris, especially in the bond markets, too, where there's really no depth. <laughs> it's uh, a bit nerve wracking sometimes, but yeah. Yeah, if you, and it's, uh, given that... Um, much of the trading um, that's done these days is sort of in um, in large blocks, be it by pension funds or mutual funds or um, ETFs. Um, there's definitely some value to uh, having um, stability in the markets and the ability to know that uh, you can execute a large trade without um, – completely getting buried. Mm-hmm. Chris Wellen, can t- take me through, um, you know, take me forward a little bit. You you, you uh, happily agreed, it would seem, um, to join me at Zoic. What, what makes a, you know, uh, you know, top bridge player in the world, former high frequency trader, help 
start out a life science fund and why is that interesting to you or was or I, I you know I, I never heard a conversation from you where I thought you were quit, so it seems like you're having fun with us and you're laughing quite a bit on the yeah call. um I think um it seemed like uh Zoic would present me uh the opportunity to uh do something different but would um but but you utilizing those core skills um, that I've developed over the years, and so um, I view it. Uh, I view our work as essentially um, a, a, a new game, and what, it has one major advantage that none of my previous games had, which is that um, if I play this game well, I'll have the opportunity to um, advance the cause of science and really help the world. You know, that, that is one issue that's always been in the back of my mind. I, w- I won't say it's been in the forefront, but it's always been in the back of my mind that, uh, you know, trading stock options, playing bridge, being a high-frequency trader, these aren't um, the first um, – they aren't the first – careers that um, one thinks of when one thinks of kind of making the world a better place. Um, so I'm having uh, my own good time um, doing all of them, <laughs> but I do um, have an idea that I'd like to leave the world um, a better place than, uh, than it was when I found it. Uh, and I think uh, the opportunity to uh, help capitalize um small companies with really great ideas about, um, you know, dramatic improvements in, in healthcare. Um, it's just really exciting. Here, 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 here. (laughs) Well, what's been the most interesting part of it for you so far in general? Yeah, I think, um, the most interesting part is um, the diversity of of the work, um, which I, I hadn't quite appreciated, I don't think, um, when, when I joined up. And of course, it's always the case uh, in a startup that everybody wears many hats, uh, but I've really been able to um, think about um, many different problems that have different kind of fundamental formulations. And so uh, I find that it's been, it, it is kind of stretching my mental muscles um, in a pleasing way um, a little bit more even than I was um, hoping or expecting when I joined up. Ideal. <laughs> I think the, literally the perfect answers on both questions. Not not that there was a test here. <laughs> um, I, I, Chris Heidel, I wonder if there's any other questions you have for Chris. I, uh, I don't know how you follow that. That was great, Chris. Really. Um, no, no, it, uh, it was great. Tell me, um, in preparation for a big tournament like the one you're facing, even though it's a sort of uh, – not officially a big tournament. Do you do anything special before you play? Do you, like Pavarotti, cook a big meal, or? Uh, yeah. So 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 preparing to um, play very high level bridge is more like um, you know marathon training than you know warming up for opera or training for a sprint. So um, it involves uh, so bridge is a partnership game. 
And so um, there's a tremendous amount of work with partner on uh, developing subtleties of our communications. Um, and so for those, <laughs> for, for, so for, for, those, for those who don't know, um, Bridge is a game where um, there are uh, – tremendous communication between the partners in, in certain legal forms. So there's no, like, I point to my heart and that means I have an ace of hearts, you know, things like that. But there is sort of a, a prescribed language or prescribed uh, alphabet is really the better way to think about it, um, where um, each partnership is going to try to form the best language it can, the most sophisticated language um, out of that uh, alphabet that's going to suit its, uh, its style. And um, there are um, an incredible number of um, permutations that, that can occur at the table. Um, so um, if you deal out bridge hands um, and every bridge hand you put on a one square millimeter little microfiche or something i'll say to, to, to date myself a little um slide that's one square a millimeter um and you you laid them all end to end it would be um 100 million times the uh square footage of the earth um wow. and the number of possible there's bidding before the play in a bridge hand there's an auction period and the number of possible or auctions dwarves the number of possible hands so you have what's effectively an unlimited universe with a very limited um, permissible vocabulary. And so we need to develop a language that's going to cover most situations well. Um, so that, as it turns out, um, is not that easy. Uh, and so uh, each professional partnership is putting huge amount of time and effort into um, refining that, honing it, writing it down in a way that it can easily be remembered, um, so on and so forth. And then, of course, um, a ton of practice. And um, it's not – there's not really that much you, one can do in the week before a game to kind of um, catch up. There's no real cramming. Um, it, it, it's really it, – it, it, it's one of the um, – one of the aspects of the game that is appealing is that um, hard work really does uh, pay off um, and preparation um, definitely gets rewarded at the table. And then of course there's, uh, you know, diet and exercise are um, very important. Uh, this is um, something I feel I know quite a bit about um, having had to do a lot of thinking um, on my feet, so to speak, um, in the debate and bridge contexts, um, how to try to um, maximize um, the thought process, um, how, to, how to make it as fast and effective as possible. And um, uh, there are a number of um, pieces of advice um, I could provide. I think probably the most interesting and actionable one is uh, really to avoid uh, carbohydrates if you need to be thinking on your feet. Uh, it turns out um, you know, meat and plants are, um, are the best things to eat uh, because uh, carbohydrates uh, are difficult for your stomach to break down. Um, blood flows to your stomach to kind of um, aid that process and it flows away from your brain in ever so slightly. And so um, 
if you've got that big job interview, um, you know, go go low carb, you know, the night before. <laughs> That's great advice. It's definitely going to help you out. And of course, there's good old caffeine um, as well. So. <laughs> but we, we definitely, um, we give a lot of thought to um, being being prepared for the tournaments in, in both physically and mentally. Mm-hmm. Chris, I appreciate the time today. We had a uh, we had fun getting a glimpse into your world or your the evolution of your world. All right. Well, I hope it wasn't uh, uh, too obscure. I don't know. I don't know how much of it is uh, is is you know, <laughs> on point for most people, but uh, yeah, that's that's that you you you've got me in a nutshell now. <laughs> Chris, thank you very much. It was fascinating, really, to get a glimpse in your world and to how you think. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. It's great to meet you, Chris. Nice to meet you, Chris, and good luck. Thank you. Have a wonderful tournament.